Lord, as we uh, come to this uh, week leading up to Christmas, Lord, we thank you so much for the miraculous gift that you gave us through Jesus Christ. And so as we anticipate uh, the celebration of his birth in just one week from now, Lord, I pray that we would truly experience joy and that we would rest in the joy that you've given us through Jesus. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. So I, I want to open this morning with actually a moment of vulnerability. And uh, for some of you, what I'm about to say may resonate deeply. For others of you, it may make you potentially lose some respect for me. Um, I'm willing to take that risk. So every single year, I do almost everything I can to boycott Valentine's Day. Is there anyone else brave enough to raise their hand this morning and say, I too find this holiday pointless? Anyone? (laughs) Yes? Yes! This is a safe place, everyone. All right? The rest of you have been brainwashed by corporate America. All right? Um, the, The reason why... I don't really find this holiday meaningful is because maybe I just, I don't understand the point of it. Like, I don't get the reasoning behind it. Uh, You know, why would I randomly celebrate my marriage with Abby on February 14th every year? If you were to map out all the significant moments of our relationship and, and mark all the dates, you know, across, across a timeline, I don't think there would be any point that landed on February 14th, right? And so uh, really, it, it, the, the only reason why I would maybe celebrate Valentine's Day is because there's marketing departments telling me, yes, you know, you should absolutely You should celebrate this holiday. This is very significant to your relationship and how you express your love for your spouse. And so even the fact that I have, you know, all these these voices out there trying to sell me things, sell me cards and and gifts and whatever and all these commercials and and marketing departments telling me to celebrate this holiday, honestly, that makes me want to do it even less, right? Uh, I'm a very stubborn kind of person. And so if someone's going to tell me to do something, now I'm definitely not going to do it right? Uh, And so to summarize, I don't want to rant. There's something about Valentine's Day that just seems forced or maybe a little bit disingenuous to me, maybe a little fabricated. And uh, I mean, honestly, I have more reasons than what I just expressed. So if you're interested in learning more, you can see me after service. You can ask Abby. Abby's very familiar with all these points. But the reason that I bring that up is because some of you may have a very, very similar response to the Christmas season. So just like Valentine's Day tends to commercialize love, the Christmas season can commercialize joy. 
Uh, in fact, I'm sure many of us in this room right now, when we go home, we can look around and there's probably lots of things that have that word joy on them, whether it's uh, decorations or ornaments or you know graphics on the wall or pillows that say joy or joy to the world. Uh, in fact, as I was finishing up this sermon yesterday, I was sitting in our front family room right next to the Christmas tree, and I literally looked over and like eye level, there's an ornament that said joy, and on the other side of the tree, there was a pillow that said joy. So I am my own worst enemy, I guess. Um, some of the most popular Christmas songs have joy as a central theme. We sang one of those even uh, this, this morning. And, and even the general sort of expectation of the Christmas season is that it is a joy-filled, highly anticipated time of the year. And yet I know that there are some of us who would associate this time of year with a lot more pain than pleasure. Christmas is, is not an easy or enjoyable time for you. And so all these constant references to things like joy can quickly seem to someone like you probably annoying or disingenuous or forced or ignorant or even idealistic that we would reduce this season to, it's all about joy, right? You got to have joy. Others of us may be totally bought into kind of the joyfulness of Christmas, but it's entirely dependent on the season itself. And so once Christmas is over and all the decorations come down, then joy is going to leave with it. And so no matter where you find yourself on that spectrum, whether, whether you're kind of disenchanted with joy or you have kind of a transient joy at Christmas that's going to come and go, this passage, Zephaniah 3, is for you. Because in it, we find first that God calls his people to sing for joy. Verse 14 says, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, Shout, O Israel, rejoice or have joy and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. But not only does God call us to sing for joy, second, in his grace and in his kindness, he actually gives us reasons why his people should sing for joy. Now, before I actually get into any of those reasons, that'll, that'll be what we spend most of our time doing this morning, I, I want to just remind us uh, that as a church, we are in the middle of the Advent season, and that's why we had a, an Advent reading. In fact, um, honestly, we could, just, we could just leave it there, what Kirsten read for us this morning. I don't even have to preach. She summarized it really, really well, um, but I st I'm still going to preach. Um, but if you missed Chris's first sermon in this, in this Advent series, it's kind of leading up to Christmas Day, um, he, he kind of laid out sort of the reason for Advent, that it is a, a season of waiting. In fact, that's what that word Advent actually means. And in one sense, we're waiting for Christmas Day to arrive when we formally celebrate the birth of Christ, uh, who came as an infant. He was God in the flesh. But in another sense, we're also waiting as the collective church for that second coming of Christ, when he'll consummate all things. He'll, he'll complete all that he began, and he'll rule as the one true Savior and King. We'll actually see both of those 
points in redemptive history, both Christ coming as an infant, but then also one day Christ coming as a king and as, as a ruler. We'll see both of those points referenced uh, throughout the book of Zephaniah and even in just chapter 3. And so with all of that in mind, let me offer for you this morning these four reasons that Zephaniah gives us for why we can sing for joy according to the prophet. So first, we can sing for joy because God has made it possible. God has made it possible. So if you look just just above our passage in chapter 3, verse 9, God, through this prophecy, he points to a future day that's described as a time when he will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. Now, to really understand the significance that is wrapped up in that particular statement, we really need to understand exactly what the book of Zephaniah is doing as a whole. So on the, on the one hand, this entire prophecy is being given to the people of Judah, kind of that southern part of the nation of Israel, who because of their sin and their rebellion against God at the time are in real serious danger of a very soon approaching day of judgment. Okay, so, so God is going to essentially respond in this very significant way to all of Judah's wrongdoings if they don't turn and repent. That's basically what all of chapter 1 and then the first part of chapter 3 is warning of. And we see that judgment eventually fulfilled, actually, when Judah is, is exiled. They're taken over by this other nation, Babylon. We also see Zephaniah pointing to a day, though, where, where God's judgment is followed by his blessing and his mercy. We see that initially fulfilled when Babylon eventually allows Israel to actually return to Jerusalem, which is the capital of Judah. And they allow uh, the Israelites to begin rebuilding that city and rebuilding uh, that temple. That's what we see actually uh, for most of the book of Zephaniah, not Zephaniah, Nehemiah. So that's all happening on the surface or kind of in the foreground of this prophecy. But there's also a second level on which this day of judgment and deliverance is being used as a precursor or a foreshadowing for this final day of judgment and deliverance. It's the day of the Lord, or the day of Yahweh is the language that Zephaniah is using. So, for example, in Zephaniah 2, a day is coming when God actually pours out his wrath on the entire world. Not just Judah, not just Israel. All people are going to experience the final judgment of God. And as we move into chapter 3, which is where we'll focus our time today, there's also coming a day where God pours out his mercy and his blessing on the world. Where according to Zephaniah 3.9, he'll move in such a way that all the people would actually call on him as their Lord. In other words, there's a day coming when God's covenant is going to be expanded in such a dramatic way that it will no longer be restricted just to the Jews, just to the Israelites, but it will actually encompass all people groups. And as the New Testament unfolds, we clearly see 
that it's through Jesus Christ that this expansion of God's blessing and covenant takes place. It's through Christ that those who were separated from God's people are now going to be grafted into God's people and be partakers of the promises of God. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul is getting at in Ephesians 2 when he says that now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place, or we could say a temple for God by the Spirit. In other words, the worldwide redemptive work of God that is being referenced in Zephaniah 3.9 is being inaugurated right now through Jesus Christ. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free. We are all one in Christ. And so if you are in Christ, God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, has given you lips that are able to praise him, that are able to sing for joy. The writer of Hebrews says that through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. So why should we sing for joy, not, not just during the Christmas season, but at all times? Well, at the most basic, foundational, fundamental level, it's because God has made it possible. Through Christ, he has taken you from being his enemy whose mouths were used to defy him and defile him, and he's now made you his own child whose mouths can be used to praise him. And so why should we sing for joy? Well, first and foremost, we should sing for joy because we can, because God has made it possible through Christ. Well, the second reason we can sing for joy, though, which is very much connected to the first reason, is because our judgments are taken away. Our judgments are taken away. So as we move further along in this, uh, again, sort of a dual-level prophecy of Zephaniah, we see this hope-filled promise being made in verse 15 of chapter 3. It says, To sing and rejoice, for the Lord has taken away your judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never fear again. Now, that's, that's, interest. that's an interesting statement because it follows from an incredibly lengthy promise of judgment that is going to come upon Judah. And that judgment is going to come as a result of their sin. So despite all the reforms that were taking place by the king at that time, King Josiah, and you can, you can read about all those reforms and steps he was taking in 2 Kings 22 through 23 uh, and 2 Chronicles 34 through 35. Despite all of that, many, if not most of Israel at this time, or most of Judah, continues to rebel against God. And so to me, a legitimate question would be, well, if God has already promised a day 
where his people's judgments would be taken away, where where forgiveness will be offered, where, where mercy will be extended. Why doesn't he choose to just look past all of the sin and all of the faithlessness that Judah is guilty of right now? Why doesn't he choose to spare them from punishment so that they could experience this joy that he's talking about right now? I mean, surely they would respond in joy if God said, this is all you deserve, but guess what? You won't experience any of it, right? I mean, surely that would invoke a pretty joyful response in the moment. So why doesn't God choose to kind of go down that path, to go that direction, that plan with his people? And the answer is that the joy of the Lord is not separated from the justice of the Lord, The joy that's being spoken of in Zephaniah 3.14 does not come to God's people because God's justice has been circumvented, but it comes because God's justice has been redirected. The reason the people can rejoice is not because their sins have been ignored. It's because, according to verse 17, God has actually come into their midst, not only as a judge, but then also as a savior. He's going to take away their judgments by actually bearing the weight of justice on his own shoulders. And so all of us now who stand on this side of Zephaniah's prophecy, we know that the mighty one who will save, the mighty one that's, talk, uh, that's being spoken of at the beginning of verse 17 is Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. God came into the midst of his people through Jesus. So hopefully you're, you're beginning to see a pattern here in terms of how this prophecy is being fulfilled, right? It's a it's very classic Sunday school answer. It's Jesus. Right, that's how, that's how this prophecy is being fulfilled. But if you are in Christ, if he is your savior, then all of your sins, all of your shame, all the wrong thoughts that have entered your mind, all the pitfalls and the shortcomings that separate you from God's presence has been taken away. They have been nailed to the cross. And there's a final day coming when we'll stand before the throne of God. And despite all of our deficiencies, he will say to us, your judgments have been taken away. Enter into the everlasting joy and presence of your Father. And that's because Jesus has borne the weight of our sins. Not because God has chosen to ignore them but because he's dealt with them through Jesus. I remember when I was in high school, a girl in our youth group started inviting one of her friends uh, to to our youth group every Sunday. And I I mean, this was like a decade ago. So I think his name was Stephen, if I remember right. Um, But as I got to know Stephen more and more, I learned that he was very Catholic. Uh, In fact, he was strongly considering after graduating high school, uh, going to college, going to seminary, and actually pursuing the priesthood within the Catholic Church. So he was, he was very serious uh, about his Catholic religion. 
and, and so I was fairly sheltered growing up. Uh, I didn't have a lot of exposure to other people who uh, had different religious backgrounds or affiliations. Uh, but, you know, I knew, I knew a little bit about Catholicism to sort of ask some questions and to have some conversations with him. And, and so one of the conversations that came up on the, on the front end of our relationship was this conversation about the role of works in our salvation, right? That's kind of the, the classic debate to have uh, with Protestants versus Catholics, right? Uh, and so that conversation eventually led to another conversation about how secure our salvation actually uh, can be. Because if our salvation is at all dependent on our works, our good works, well, then maybe our bad works could also negate our salvation. And so in all this kind of back and forth with Stephen, he, he shared with me this analogy that, uh, that his priest had kind of uh, given to him because he had had some similar questions and, and he was asking uh, people within the Catholic Church these sort of things. And so he said, you know, well, what, what, what my priest said is that our salvation is a lot like a Christmas present sort of waiting for us underneath the Christmas tree, which is a very, uh, uh, very relevant sort of analogy right now. Um, but he says, you know, we can anticipate what's in the box. We can maybe have an educated guess what's in the box. We can assume that that gift that's underneath the Christmas tree, it's there out of, out of love for us but we won't actually know what's in that box, what's in the gift waiting for us until we're finally able to open it on that last day, the day of Christmas. And I'd never heard that kind of analogy before, that, that example. Uh, again, I, I was fairly sheltered, you know, grew up in a Christian home, went to church, uh, grew up going to a Christian school. And so some of this was all kind of new ideas for me, sort of a new, new perspective that I wasn't as familiar with. And so I thought about that analogy for a little bit. And, and I said, but, but Stephen, I know what's in the box. I know because it's been bought for me by the blood of Christ. That's why we can sing for joy. That's why we can know we are part of God's promises. We are part of God's people because our judgments have been taken away. They've been paid on the cross. They've been exchanged for the righteousness of Christ. And so we can sing for joy because our judgments are no more. They've been taken away by Christ. Well, not only can we sing for joy because God has made it possible, not only can we sing for joy because our judgments are taken away, but third, we can sing for joy because God sings for joy over us. God sings for joy over us. So at the beginning of our passage, in, in verse 14, we have this clear call to sing and rejoice and exult because of God's redemption, because it's taken place among his people, because he's sending uh, himself in our midst. He's sending the mighty one who will save. But as we move down actually into the second half of verse 17, Zephaniah paints this very interesting picture. He says, it's actually God now who is singing and rejoicing and exulting over his people. 
So verse 17 says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Now, this is about as crazy a plot twist as when you find out Bruce Willis is actually dead in the sixth sense, okay? If you've not seen that movie, I am, I'm not even sorry. It, you should have watched it by now. It's so old, okay? Crazy, crazy turn of events that is happening in Zephaniah 3. We see a very similar kind of plot twist or turn of events in Ephesians 1, where actually uh, in, in verse 11, Paul explains that Christians inherit the riches of God's blessing. He says, in him, that is in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. But as we go down then to verse 16 and then uh, the end of verse 18, Paul now says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And so on one hand, we're the inheritors of God's riches. But on the other hand, Paul says, we're also the inheritance of God. We are the riches of God. God looks at us as his prized possession. Now, one conclusion that we could make from all of this, as we read through you know, Zephaniah 3, as we read through Ephesians 1, one conclusion is, wow, I must be doing all right. I mean, Look at all the things God is willing to do to get me on his team. I must be a very high draft pick that he would spend all this capital on me, right? But in reality, what we see both in the Old Testament and the New is that whatever position we have before God, whatever value is placed on us in the context of his kingdom has nothing to do with who we are or what we've done. It has everything to do with what God has done for us and who he has made us to be and who he's making us to be. And so we'd be foolish, I think, to read some of these passages and interpret it as the ultimate pep talk on our self-worth, as though we deserve some kind, of, some kind of praise or reward or credit for what God has done in his own power. But what should encourage us from these two passages is that God has given all of himself so that we might be saved and he regrets none of it. He does not look at the ones he saved and say, that ended up not being that great of an investment. Or, or that didn't end up being as fruitful as I thought it would have. Or I gave too much for some of those people. No, Zephaniah says he literally rejoices over those that are his. He sings for joy at the fact that he has exercised his power and grace and mercy in such a way that actually leads to our salvation and makes us heirs with Christ. Even though we don't deserve it, 
even though there is nothing, no measurable reality in which we are worth all the things that God has given to purchase our salvation for us. And friends, that should encourage us. That is why we can sing for joy. Amen? It's because he sings for joy over us. Well, those are the first three reasons. There's more. The fourth and final reason that we can sing for joy is because our hope is in eternity. Our hope is in eternity. So if you look at the last three verses of Zephaniah 3, verses 18 through 20, the Lord says, I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with your oppressors. I will save the lame and gather the outcast. I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in. At the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes. And right here in these last three verses of Zephaniah's prophecy, we see maybe the biggest difference between the commercialized, prepackaged, mass-produced joy that's sold to us sometimes at Christmas and the joy that God is offering us and speaking about in this passage. True biblical joy is not dependent on our present circumstances. True joy does not come and go depending on how the wind is blowing that day, that week, or that year in our lives. There are some of you who, especially at Christmas, experience real, genuine, significant pain. There are some of you who have experienced pain all throughout this past year. And maybe Christmas is going to be a, qu a, a quick reprieve from some of that pain, or maybe it'll just, you know, keep kind of carrying right on through. And if you're hearing all these points this morning, all these reasons that we should be joyful, and you think, well, I guess I can't mourn. I guess I can't acknowledge the hurt in my life. I guess I can't grieve because, you know, God is good. And, and he, he says that I need to be joyful. He, he calls me to rejoice. I, I want you to know this morning, that is not true. That is an incomplete application of a passage like Zephaniah 3. In fact, if you look at the kind of people that God is going to gather on that final day, it's going to be people that mourn. It's going to be the ones who are oppressed it's going to be the lame and the outcast, the ones who are so overcome with shame. The joy of the Lord that's described here does not cancel out or nullify the grief and the brokenness that we encounter in this life. It just outlives it. The joy that's spoken of in Zephaniah 3 is not a joy that comes and goes with decorations and pillows and Christmas trees. It's an everlasting joy. It's a joy that's rooted 
in eternity. Uh, when I was writing this sermon this past week, I, I came along uh, this quote, and I actually don't, I don't know who said it. Uh, I found several different references to it, but it said, the joy is not the absence of pain, but the presence of God. So yes, there is pain. There is mourning to be had in this life. There is grief. There is suffering and oppression. There is shame that we even experience. There's hardship. But none of those things are eternal for those who are in Christ. None of those things should be able to rob us of joy because our joy is grounded in someone who will never falter, who will never fail. And so church, let's rejoice together. Let's sing, not just about joy this Christmas, but let's sing for joy. Let's sing with joy in response to all that God has done, all that he is doing, and all that he will do for those of us who are in Christ, who are his people in covenant with him, who will one day reap all the benefits of the promises that he's made. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you so much that you are not a surface-level God. That you don't just speak empty words to us. You don't just make big promises that aren't fulfilled, that aren't kept. But Lord, you speak into the most significant, the most felt needs that we could have in our human experience. And you say, I'm the solution to that. Follow me, and you will have my inheritance. You will be my loved ones, the ones who I rejoice over. Lord, thank you so much for the joy that you give us in Christ, and I pray that we would truly remember that this Christmas season, that we would not settle for a transient joy that comes and goes, for a joy that's rooted in things of this world and this life, but that we would be grounded in the everlasting, eternal joy that only comes through Jesus Christ. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen.